In chapters 5 through 7, Paul addresses some problems related to sex. There were a number of people sleeping around in the church. One guy with his stepmother, a number of other people still worshiping at the local temples to greet gods, and sleeping with the prostitutes who worked there. Not only that, but there were people in the church who were saying that this was all just fine. They said, hey, we're free in Christ. God's grace is bottomless, right? It's fine. Paul says, it's not fine. And with the gospel in hand, he shows just how wrong-headed this kind of thinking is. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 20. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. It is, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Now, you might think I'm about to preach a sermon all about sex. Don't worry, it's not all about that. I think that uh, a, a lot of what Paul says about this one particular sin actually applies to quite a few of them. And I've, I've said up here many, many times that there's sort of a big three of sins that the Bible talks about uh, as, as sort of being far and away worse than almost anything else, and those are money, sex, and power. And anything that's true of one of those is true of all of them. And I might, I might throw food into that list also, in case you couldn't tell. First um, Corinthians is one of those letters where if you were to take Paul's words and put them into more modern language, it might sound something like, listen, you little perverted freaks. <laughs> Sit still and act normal for a minute while I talk to you. Right? He's dealing with people who are doing things that even you and I would, would be sort of appalled at. Right? And we are much more desensitized to some of these things than Paul was. But again, it, it applies to more than just the things he's saying. I think a lot of Christians fall into this trap of thinking that we have actually mastered our desires. We have control over them. Right? We've mastered the art of resisting temptation. And so we don't have to worry about it anymore, right? We know it's going to come. We know how to fight it. We don't give in to it. We're good. But, you know, the reality is it's just as easy for us to let our desires gain mastery over us as it is for anyone else. I learned just this past week that a pastor who I've known for 12 years, who was married, three children, who was the person who led several of my closest friends to Christ in the first place, was arrested this summer for continuous sexual abuse of a minor. And that's obviously an extreme example, but it goes to show that, that no one, no one is beyond temptation. And the minute you think you don't have to worry about it anymore, that's when you've lost the battle. So Paul, Paul is focused on the specific problems that the Corinthians are having in this letter, obviously. And the reality is the things that they're dealing with, the sorts of temptations and, and inappropriate relationships that are popping up amongst the Corinthian church are not, they're, they're not unfamiliar to us. And at the same time, everything he says can be applied to so many more things. But again, we have to first recognize that maybe we're not as in control of our desires as we think we are. Let me ask you this. When was the last time as you were scrolling through your phone, and you all do it no matter how old you are, I've seen you, right? When was the last time as you were scrolling through your phone that you clicked on a link because the headline was a little bit racy or because the thumbnail image was someone showing a lot of skin. Maybe you're not as in control of that desire as you think you are. Or when was the last time that, that your gaze lingered on someone else a little too long? And just to be clear, I'm talking to you women too. I'm Facebook friends with you all. I see what you post. This is universal, right? Maybe we're not as in control of that desire as we like to think we are. Maybe we're just really good at, at masking how much that desire has control over us 
by claiming that it's okay because we don't act on it. But let's go beyond that. What about food, right? How many of you are actually satisfied with all the food you have in your house right now? And how many of you, if you've got a craving right now for a specific food, would feel compelled to go out and buy that? Someone's honest. Yeah, here we go. Maybe you don't have as much mastery over your desire for food as you think you do. In 2024, when the election's over, if, if your candidate loses, are you going to feel grateful that you live in a country with a peaceful transition of power, or are you going to panic because you don't know how you'll survive in a world where the other side won? Do you know how rare it is for a nation to have a peaceful transition of power even today? And most of us are going to hit the panic button before we ever stop to reflect on how good it is that we can transition peacefully. And I know that because I saw it happen last time and the time before that and the time before that. It's not new. Maybe you don't have as much control over your desire for power as you think you do. Maybe you don't even realize how much you have a desire for power in the first place. maybe as, as the cost of living goes up, how many of you have continued to faithfully give to your churches or to charitable organizations? And how many of us have, in a spirit of fear, started holding on to more and more of our money? Maybe you don't have as much control over your desire for money as you think you do. It is possible, my friends, that your desires have more power over you than you realize. And the thing is, Jesus does not tell us to eliminate those desires. He doesn't tell you to get rid of them. He tells you to master them, to take control of them, so that we can submit ourselves to our true master. Not long ago, uh, Peter O'Keefe's book, Empire of Pain, came out, and then they made it into a, a TV special as well, but the book is about the, the opioid epidemic and specifically uh, OxyContin, which most of us can probably remember. And, and the fascinating thing about that story is for the first time, really people are pointing out uh, a, an addiction problem where you can't simply dismiss it as saying, well, that's just a bunch of junkies and lowlifes getting hooked on things they have no business using. It was a bunch of hardworking men and women with families and healthy lives who were prescribed a medication they were told would have no habit-forming problems because the doctors were told it was not habit-forming, right? And they were all lied to. And a new form of addiction was created because it, it was not like other addictions people had dealt with before. Standard treatments for addiction didn't work because the drug rewired your brain. And for most people, the only way to successfully get off of it was not to break the addiction, but to replace it with another one. They literally had to become addicted to something else to get off of the drug. That was the only way. They were utterly powerless over that addiction. And you know, when we, when we read passages like this and we start talking about things that we, we are understand to be sinful, we put them in this box that we call sin and we think it's like a list of things that we're not supposed to do, right? It's, it's the rule book and, and the sin is just breaking the rules and you're not supposed to break the rules. And if that's true, it should be pretty easy to avoid. But what if it's not quite that simple? What if sin actually works in the same way 
that an addiction works. We know, we know that even just looking at pornography triggers the same receptors in your brain that using opioids does. You can't deny there's an addictive component. The same goes for eating sugar, which is why it's better to drink beer than drink soda. Just FYI. We know that that's true. But it's, uh, as always, right, it's not just, it's not just that. Like money can do it too. If you've ever taken uh, the Financial Peace University courses, one of the things they tell you is that we now know that when you hand over cash to pay for something, it literally triggers the pain receptors in your brain. And I would bet, I would bet that for people who have grown up in a largely cashless world, the same is true of swiping that card, right? I'm betting the same thing happens. The pain receptors light up. There is a physical response to it. In fact, uh, the, the neuroscientist Mark Lewis, who wrote the book called The Biology of Desire, says, there have been studies showing that people making high-powered decisions in business and politics always have high levels of dopamine because they are in a constant state of goal pursuit. So just making the decisions in their business world, in their political world, to acquire more money, to acquire more power, that triggers the dopamine response in the brain. They are addicted to it. All of these things trigger the same response that addictive drugs do. So what if the way to break an addiction is with another addiction? Just like the Oxycontin addicts had to do. What if we're meant to replace an addiction to sin with an addiction to Jesus? This, by the way, is something that I think the Apostle Paul actually understood because all throughout his letters, he'll use phrases like, you were once slaves to sin and now you're slaves to Christ. You know, they didn't have a word for addiction in his society. That wasn't the, the kind of concept that we have now. So the closest they could come is referring to some sort of slavery to something else, right? I think Paul actually uses the language of addiction here when he talks about sin versus following Christ. You replace your addiction to sin with your addiction to Christ. See, the thing is, anything that you love can become an addiction. All it takes is for you to depend on that thing more than you depend on God. That's it. Because if addiction is dependency, then there is no avoiding it. We are not made to be independent. It's not possible. You are created for dependency. But you're created specifically for dependency on God. And all too often, we try and substitute something less than him. But we are never free from dependence. We are never truly independent. It is not possible. We're not made that way. We will be dependent on something or someone. We have to be. So, back into the scripture. This, this passage starts with this sort of the bit about the lawsuits, and that feels maybe a bit out of place with what follows. Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily apply all that well to us because our situation is a bit different, right? If you go to court now, there's a good chance that the judge is a believer. There's a good chance the people in the juries will have some Christians in there. And our entire legal system is based on Judeo-Christian principles. So it's not quite the same scenario. But, but the, the core of the message is, is simply that, listen, 
you're Christians, you're adults, you should be able to solve your problems without it escalating to the point where you're taking each other to court, right? Grow up. But at the, at the root of that problem is a desire for power, isn't it? You want to win the fight. You want to win the argument. You want power. And you want it so much that you are going outside the church and turning to the empire because you're willing to sacrifice the rest of what you believe to have power over this person. And then he moves on into this lovely little sin list here in verses 9 through 10, but that's not actually the point of the passage. The point of what he's doing is not to list all the things you're not supposed to do. The point of the passage is in verse 11, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were bought with a price. He does all of that to set up this pivot where he reminds people, look, you were like that, and then Jesus changed you. You have an old life and a new life. But you keep reverting to the old. What are you doing? That's what he wants them to hear. That Listen, all these things that I'm having to keep remind you of, that's the old you. You are not locked into those behaviors anymore. You are something different. You've been sanctified. You have been bought with a price. Live like it. Jesus changed you. Don't go back. And evidently, the Corinthians have adopted this bizarre idea of, of Christian liberty, right? this concept that, that we have been saved by grace through faith and there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation and now there's no rules. And, you know, in, in comparison to their Jewish neighbors, there's truth in that, right? Because, of course, the Jewish people they would have known had all, all kinds of rules they had to follow, right? They have rules about what they can eat, what they can wear, how they can cut their hair, uh, where they can buy their clothes. They have rules about what they can do each day of the week, right? Very regimented, and by contrast, the Christian faith is not. And so there is this sense of liberty in there, but they've misinterpreted it. St. Augustine summarized the idea of Christian liberty this way. He says, love, and then do what you will. In other words... As long as you are motivated and guided by love, you don't have to worry about whether what you do is wrong or right because it will be right. Not because love makes anything okay, but because if, it's, if you're motivated by love, you're not going to be doing the bad things. And, and crucially, right, the, the kind of love he's talking about is, is love in the New Testament sense, right? A, a sacrificial, self-giving love that puts... God and others before self, right? The same love that led Jesus to the cross. This isn't, this isn't like a warm, fuzzy love. This is deep stuff. A willingness to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. If you're motivated by that kind of love, then you're free to do what you want. In other words, this whole idea of, of Christian liberty, right, being free to live as you wish, is not actually like freedom to do whatever you want. It is freedom specifically to show the world the incredible scope and scale of the love of God. But what the Corinthians have done is they've taken this idea to mean that they've got the complete freedom to gratify all their desires whenever they want. They've cheapened it. 
And obviously Paul pushes back against that and he has this wonderful line in verse 13 or verse 12, right? I will not be mastered by anything. See, because if, if you don't master your desires, they will master you. Absolutely. They will control you. They will, they will control your decision-making. You will be guided by your desire for whatever it is you've picked in that moment. Whether it's sex, money, power, whatever. They become your master. And then there's this line in verse 13, right? He says, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food. What he's doing is he's taking things the Corinthians have said to him and throwing it back in their faces and saying, nope, you've got this wrong. What they're saying is, look, all these things we're doing, they're just natural things. This is what we're supposed to do. Obviously, our bodies are made to do this, so it's okay. And Paul says, nope, that's sorry. No, that's not how it works. You don't get to think that way anymore. Right? Paul says, look, the hunger and eating are, are, are temporary things. They're transitory. But one day, you're going to be raised from the dead with Jesus, and you won't need to eat anymore, but, but you'll still exist. You'll still have a body. And so the things you do with your body matter. There is a moral component to it. And in the sense that the moment you sleep with someone, you are one flesh. It's not metaphorical language in the Bible. It's literal language in the Bible. You're united to them in some kind of way that we don't fully understand, and it changes you forever. It has eternal consequences. It matters. You don't get to treat it just like a bodily function. There's something sacred here. And, and this, too, applies beyond just our sex lives. It applies to how we handle our money. It applies to how we handle power. All of it. But what he really builds up to is this end these last couple of verses about your bodies being temples to the Holy Spirit, right? Because what he's saying is your body is dependent on God. In the same sense that it's dependent on food, it's dependent on God. It is made to function in that way. And if you try to replace God with anything else, if you try to fill that need for dependency with anything else, it will only lead to destruction. It will only hurt you. It will only harm you. You cannot be independent. You will be dependent on something or someone. And again, the, the, the tough part about this is these three things, money, sex, and power, they're not inherently bad things. They're not. They're, they're gifts from God, right? Obviously, you need money to live, right? It buys your food. It pays for your shelter. You have to have it. There's no denying that. If you have enough of it, you can provide food and shelter for other people, and that's obviously a great thing. Money supports ministries of churches like this one. So obviously, it can be a force for good in the world. Power is not inherently bad. People can use power to accomplish good things, and it's happened all throughout history, Right? People have used their power to end slavery. People have used their power to destroy the Nazi regime. People have used power for all kinds of good and blessed things throughout history, but people have also abused it. Power is a good thing, provided you put it in its place and master it so that it does not master you. 
And the same is true for sex. Sex is a good thing. It's a gift from God. It takes two people and unites them into one in a way that we will never fully understand this side of the grave. It creates new life in every sense of the word, but it can be abused. And in the same way it can create life, it can destroy life, and it can shatter people, and it can destroy families. That's the tricky part about these things. None of them are bad. There are other sins in your life you can get rid of by just cutting them off, right? You don't have to worry about them. Just avoid them altogether. But these three things are everywhere, and they have to be. They are inescapable. And at times, it's a fine line between mastering them and letting them master you. It's tricky. And all too often, the the Christian response is to just reject them altogether as evil and impure and reduce them to nothing but but just utilitarian purposes. But that doesn't work. It fails every time. It can't be done. Jesus gives us another way. Because the gospel does not label these things as wrong or impure. It tells us the danger is that they can master you if you don't master them first. And the thing is, this is not a matter of of character or willpower. It's not a matter of just being strong enough to resist the temptation. No one is strong enough. No one has the character or the willpower to do it. If it was just a matter of character, you would never hear news stories about people who everyone thought were good, kind, and generous people falling into these sorts of traps because they were people of character. That's not what it's about. Everyone is subject to the same temptations. Everyone is equally powerless to overcome them. So you replace an addiction with an addiction. Instead of letting your desires be your master, you let Jesus be your master. You let him guide your decisions, guide your life. If servitude to our desires inevitably leads to broken relationships and pain and suffering, then servitude to Christ leads to wholeness and healing and joy. We, all of us, have a choice. We can master our desires or we can let them master us. My friends, let Jesus be your master. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.